Father, we come before you. Grateful. Grateful for your abiding love. Father, we come before you because we want more of you. As we worship about stirring our hearts, Father, give us a passion for your name, a passion for you, to be more like you, Jesus, to surrender more to you. In my flesh there dwells no good thing, but in you there is life. I pray with each and every man here, Father, that the word that's spoken, Father, transforms us. Gives us heart that are grateful. Grateful for what you've done for us, what you're doing for us and what you will do. Have your way, Jesus. Have your way. In your name, amen. Okay, so we're continuing on now into chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. We went through chapter 8, and you got the bullet points there. So Paul is encouraging the church at Corinth, and let's read the first five verses of chapter 9. Now concerning the ministry to the saints, it's superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some of the Macedonians come with me, find you unprepared. And we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as grudging obligation. So that's, that's a bit. So basically, Paul is talking to them. And I'm going to use another translation, the J.B. Phillips paraphrase. For between ourselves, it would never do if some of the Macedonians were to accompany me on my visit to you and find you unprepared for this act of generosity. We, not to speak of you, should be horribly ashamed just because we had been so proud and confident of you. Okay, that makes it a little bit easier, kind of bottom lines what Paul was saying. But basically, if you look through it, he's saying, look, He's saying it's superfluous at the beginning. He's saying, look, you're the ones, your zeal and passion for the gospel, you're the ones that were the first out to share in helping the ministry to the saints in Jerusalem. You're the first out. And because of what you did, others followed your example. Others followed your example, and they were stirred to give. And that's what happened to the Macedonians. Okay, so Macedonia is in the north part of Greece. Okay, the churches that are there are the churches of Philippi, Thessalonica, Thessalonica, and Berea. Achaia is in the south. It's kind of an island south of Greece, if you know anything of what Greece looks like. And Corinth is the main capital of Achaia. Okay, and when you see those Corinthian churches were 
relatively rich, but they gave generously the first time. We've talked about already the Macedonians who were poor gave out of their poverty. Okay, and if you, and same with the Philippi, and if you're like me, you, you may treasure the book of Philippians, which was specifically spoken to the church of Philippi, but for our benefit. The point being is Paul is saying, look, you're an example. And the thing for us to appreciate is the life that we lead, we're an example for others. When somebody here steps out in faith and trusts in God, it stirs others up. It leads others to step forward in faith. I am encouraged by your faith as you are by mine. When you step out and make a choice that shows that you love Jesus more than the world, it stirs others up. Just like in worship, when we're worshiping together, when you look around and you see somebody else worshiping and they're worshiping God, I'm more inclined to worship. I'm more inclined to go, yes, they believe God is real. They believe God is faithful. They believe God is true. That's part of what the body's like, is we're encouraged in fellowship with one another, and that's the same thing within the body itself. When we're, we hear stories and testimonies again and again about people who give their lives for the gospel, those of you who've done a walk of repentance will know that on the weekend, on Saturday, you hear these testimonies, these martyrs who gave their lives in faith, who trusted in God even though they lost much, many of them their own lives, certainly their lives of their spouses or their children, and yet they went on in faith. That inspiration lets us know that, hey, it makes a difference. Likewise, what we do, everything that we do has a spiritual impact. Our walk is not just our own. Our walk is not just our own. It makes a difference to those around us, definitely within our families and within our household, within the church body, but also within our community, the city, the state, the country, and the world. Do not think our actions are in isolation. That's the deception that the devil will give us. He'll say, what you do is hidden. No worry, nobody's going to find out. Certainly God knows everything, but it also has an impact. It makes a difference in what happens in the environment around you. It creates an atmosphere that either glorifies God or takes away from God. Likewise, our actions in what we do, when we act in ways to choose to satisfy the flesh, it leads others to think, yes, that's okay to do that. When we make choices to sacrifice things of the flesh for the spirit, it lets others go, yes, that makes a difference. So that's what Paul is talking to them. He's exhorting them. Nestor exhorts you to go ahead ahead of time. And, and part of it is, you, you have to understand, his passion towards the church. Everything that I've talked about, Paul loves the Corinthian church. When somebody exhorts us, when somebody challenges us to step forward, they're not doing it because they're being mean to us. They're not doing it to put us down. If they truly love us, they won't just let us go on sinning. They won't let us not be the very best that we can be in the Lord. They will encourage us, exhort us, admonish us, compel us, comfort us, but everything to the path towards Jesus. We are blessed in this congregation to have a pastor who believes that, and that's why he comes across so strongly. And an evangelist and one of the elders 
Pastor Glenn, who has been a pastor but now evangelist, same thing, exhorting us to step forward in faith, to press in deeper, to trust more completely. So, likewise, we need to do the same with one another, and that's what Paul's doing here. You have to also realize that this is not the first appeal to the church for the believers in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 11, verse 29, okay, they were, uh, Agabus stood up in Antioch, and he's relating and saying um, the need in Jerusalem is severe. There's a famine going through um, Jerusalem. And then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. And the word relief here, and the same thing before about the word ministry is diakonia, which is where we get the word deacon. Meeting people's physical needs, meeting their basic needs, okay, which is what the ministry of the, what deacons are supposed to do in the body, also ministers to the spirit. The right motivation makes the difference how we're doing it, and why we're doing it. But we're called to do both, to minister to the physical and the spiritual. That's why those who are involved in missions, it's always a mixture of both, meeting the, the needs of the people there, the actual needs they may have, particularly in overseas missions, okay, but also meeting, meeting the spirit. And they're both aligned. And the word here in the Greek basically refers to both. Okay. So he says there, that last line there, therefore I thought it necessary that it might be ready as a matter of generosity and not as grudging obligation. I've shared this before and this is so important. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. The heart attitude that we have is critical. And so what he's saying here is if it's done out of obligation, if you're doing it in a church because you feel shamed to do it, you feel guilty, then that's the wrong spirit. Everything we talked about, the attitude that you do, what you do has to be done in the right spirit. So if I'm telling you and saying, yeah, I know, I'm supposed to do this because then it makes others feel they're good about it, that's the wrong heart. We don't want it. God doesn't need it. If it's the heart attitude that says, I'm going to do it because I am so grateful for what the Lord God's done for me. This is the least that I can do. Then that's the attitude that encourages others. There's a different spirit with each one. So, with regard to this in 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in certain uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give willingly, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may hold on eternal life. 
And the next, in Hebrews 13, 16. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So it says in that, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So how do you give generously, sacrificially, sacrificially at the same time? Without obligation, without feeling guilty, without feeling loss. Because the natural thing when you give, you go, well, that leaves, I don't have as much. If I'm tithing, I'm giving 10%. If I do that, and, and then they're asking for other offerings, then how am I going to meet my budget? How am I going to take care of things? This is especially so for those of us who have debt. Brother Glenn shared with me last week, and he was exactly right. Those of us who are in debt, who have multiple loans, who have credit cards that you still have to pay, we're in bondage. Not just material bondage, but spiritual bondage. And that bondage prevents us from expressing what God wants us to do. I know we think it's okay to have a mortgage. It's pretty much accepted. It's pretty normal now. As I've shared, that's a thing of about 100 years. They didn't have mortgages before then. For all time, man didn't have mortgages. Now we do what we think. And the mortgages are set up with the idea that you can have all that you want to have right now and kind of pay later or pay as you go. But then your bond, that's a bond, that's a chain on you. And it's a bondage on your mind but it definitely on your spirit, and it inhibits your ability to do God's work. This is hard for us to understand, but to be cheerful, you, you can't be entrapped. You can't be so encumbered. When you have weights upon you, you have loads upon you, it makes it difficult for you to do it because you're always weighing and considering those things. Am I saying you can't ever have a mortgage? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying you have to be very careful. I'm saying you should seek counsel. I'm saying you shouldn't examine your assumptions to think what you're entitled to. I'm saying most importantly, you have to take it to the Lord. God has to give you wisdom, insight of what to do, to show what is your ex expectation, what are, you in, what are you involved in, what are you trying to get, what you're trying to achieve. More, I hear testimonies over and over about how many people have so many financial burdens. They're trapped in that, and because of that, it inhibits their ability to give, and what they want, what the first thing they want to do is they think, hey, if I don't give to God, I have this extra money here. Look, if I'm not tithing, I'm not giving this, I got this extra money, then I could spend towards that. What they don't realize is the same thing we don't realize, is we think that we can do more with the 100% that we earn than God to do with the 90 or the 80. We don't understand God's economy. We don't understand God's provision. We don't understand that the God of the universe doesn't need our money. He doesn't. He doesn't need us to achieve anything. He needs our heart. So God gives, okay? He gives with his right hand, asking us to give some back into his left. Okay, that's the heart of what we do. But what that shows is I trust you. I believe in you. I believe what you're going to do for me, even though I don't understand, is better. And you, God may say, 
Yes, but there's things I need to change about what your sense of priorities are. And we have to be willing to allow that. And we're going to have problems. We're going, I'm giving the tithing, but I'm not willing to change my expectations. That means I want to get the latest electronics. I want to have a big TV when I'm watching the Super Bowl or whatever you want to have. We don't need television. We really don't need as complex a phone. We don't need a lot of things that we choose to have. But we want. And the problem with wanting, with materialism, is it is never satisfied. You want that, then you want the next, then you want the next. Even a new car smells great for six weeks, but after a while you're like, ah, I want the next good thing that comes along. Yeah, or want something that's reliable. Then the car breaks down and then you feel you gotta, you gotta get another car. So let's look at the heart that Paul wants us to have in the next verses in Corinthians. Verses six to eight. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let us each give one as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So, um, one of the ones Dave Guzik uses an analogy of uh, the farmer seed, and this is used in many, many of the commentaries. So, the sowing is obviously what a farmer does, right? So, he sows seed, so he loses the seed, right? You're going through seed, right? But as a, you know, but why do you cast the seed? You're putting the seed for a future harvest, right? We just had a bunch of tomatoes and cucumbers from the seeds that Pastor Jeff cast in the spring. So the seeds that we do, when we sow generously, you're gonna get more. And that analogy is applicable to our spiritual, the things that we sow into, what we invest into. And we have to decide what those investments are. Now, I'm not talking a name it and claim it prosperity, that if you sow money, God's going to give you riches and where things are, because God's not interested in money as much. He really isn't. Okay? Jesus wasn't. He wasn't after that. He let Judas handle the money purse. Okay? He definitely wasn't focused about money. His focus was on the kingdom. And so when he talks about a harvest, it's always going to be of kingdom value. We may sow even materially, but there'll be a kingdom value. Okay? And that's the most important har har harvest. Does that mean that God won't meet our material needs? No, of course he will. Does, God, does that mean that God won't give us some temporal blessings or blessings with things that work? Yes, he will. He does care about us. He's not uncaring of our physical needs. He dresses the lilies in the fields and feeds the birds. Okay, He gives them what they need and tells us not to worry. He'll take care of us materially. But his priority is always towards the kingdom for his glory. Okay, And so that's the biggest payoff. When you're looking at what the biggest payoff, it's always going to be a spiritual harvest. And so in Proverbs 11, 24 to 26, there is one who scatters, yet increases more, and there's one who withholds more than is right, but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. The people will curse him who withholds grain, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. 
And then look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 15 to 19. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once again for my necessities. Now that I seek, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And, this is the killer verse, and may God supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Not some all our needs. Now, who knows what our needs are the best? God, right. We sometimes think we know what our needs are because we have misplaced sense of priorities. We, they may not be our needs, but God knows exactly what our needs are. And his priority is always for the kingdom, always for the spirit. Sometimes it may not mean a material thing, and you'll be in a bit of a trial, wondering where things are. But it's always increasing our faith and trust in him. Look at Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Now we look at that. Okay, that means if I left my house, I got a hundred houses and left my... You know, all the other family, I get a hundred brothers and all that. That's not what it's saying. Hundredfold means the blessings we'll get will be much worse, hundred times better than what we've lost. We've lost relationship. The relationship we'll have with Christ will be better than we can imagine. He'll wipe away every tear. And it's hard for us. Some of you come from families that are following Jesus. Praise God. Some of you don't. Except for myself and my son, I'm the only one, we're the only ones who really have a relationship with Jesus in my whole family. And so I grieve that they're not. I'm grieving my daughter right now that she's not following, praying that she will and trusting the Lord in that, but also with my cousins and my brother and that's, and my, my, my father and mother who passed, not knowing and really wondering whether or not they had a relationship with Christ. God only knows, but I haven't seen fruit of that. So those are griefs. There's griefs we carry, okay? God has promised, God has promised a hundredfold that all those tears will be wiped away. So I want you to trust in faith when you're following Jesus with complete abandon, even though others may say, what are you doing? That's crazy. What are you doing? You're, don't you know that you're supposed to take care of yourself first? What are you doing? What, what are you investing in? What's happening? What about your retirement? What about your future? What are you doing here? What, why, why are you driving the own clunker? You just told me it broke down again and you have to drive. Why don't you just buy a new car and stop paying all that money to the church? All the things that the world's going to tell you that make sense by the ways of the world. Their priority is going to be different than ours. And the more you follow Jesus, the more you surrender to him, the more divergent your path will be. It's going to be harder to connect and relate. That's what's going to happen. It's where we're coming to. As God pulls us out of the world, the desires of the world hopefully will be less in us. 
but we'll have less of a priority and focus of the rest of the world. It may make us di more difficult to relate on the world's terms. But praise God, God's Spirit's at move, moving. It's God who pulls people to Him. And as we're attuned to the Spirit, we'll be ready. We'll be ready to share the good news. Ready to reach out to those who don't have a relationship with Christ. Seeing their spiritual need at the moment to say the right word at the right season that God has promised to give us. To snatch them from the fire. Because it is all going to burn. All our houses, all this material stuff, our cars, all our st stuff that we got, all of that will burn. None of it will last. None of it will last. So, the kind of giver that God wants is a hard attitude, but there's some Barclays um, Expository Bible talks about the kind of giving man and the blessings of that, the person who's a giver. And I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, the giver, when you get back a hundredfold, just in the by the nature of the giver, number one, he will be rich in love. You know, generosity can cover a multitude of sins. Somebody who's generous can giving and gets latitude. Nobody likes somebody who's mean. You perform, we, we always prefer the warm heart, even though its very warmth may lead to excesses. Somebody can give so much they don't have very much, or they're too generous. And you're we're saying, why are they so nice to them? They're enabling them. But even that is preferred than somebody who's cold and calculating. That person who's a giver will always have friends, be rich in friends. An unlovable man can never expect to be loved. The man whose heart runs out to others will always find that the hearts of others run out to him. I say this to let you know, one of the things I notice in the emergency room, I, I see people all the time, you know, they'll call the ambulance and they'll come in and they don't need to be admitted to hospital. And the struggle we have is not even in taking care of them because some things we can help them. But the big struggle is we can't get a ride for them to go home. The ambulance doesn't take them, they're not really, you know, with the way the, the system is set up is anybody can call the ambulance and they have to pick you up. Whether you can transport or hire, you can. You come with a stub toe, you call the ailments, they have to bring you. And they bring everybody, and we see them. But if they have a stub toe, we check. It's not broken, we tape it, they're ready to go. But they have nobody to pick them up. They've come by ailments. They have nobody to pick them up. And this is not something that happens once in a while. It's recurrent. You have nobody that you can call? No. Nobody? You have no family? No. You have no friends? No. None. And this is a common occurrence. It goes, it, every week that I've worked, I've seen it. It's, it's a common occurrence. People don't have any connection. And when you look at their lives and you look at their heart and how they're dispositioned even to the staff, because they're nice to me because they want me to give them what they want. But how they treat the nursing staff tells me a lot more of what they're really like. And the way they treat the nurses tells a lot of what their heart attitude, they're very critical and ungenerous in their spirit. And to have a friend, you gotta, you know, you have to be a friend. And that refers to a giving heart and a giving disposition. So I'm not saying anybody here is, you know, cold-hearted, but I am saying when you look at other people and you look at people who don't have friends, those people are not 
givers by nature. They're not generous in themselves of their time, of their resources, or of their money. Their really focus is in self. So I said that they're rich in help. The day will come when we need the help of others. And if we've been sparing our help to them, the likelihood is that they will be sparing in their help to us. But the most important thing of the somebody's giving is they will be rich towards God. Jesus said over and over, what you did for the least of us, you did for me. So the day will come when every time we opened our hearts and hand, it will stand in our favor before God. But every time we didn't, the Lord will know that as well. Um, there's a phrase that, there were so many that I saw that I liked, but um, there's one that was very good. God remembers not so much all that we give, but that which we withhold. So where does the giving come from? It comes from our heart. Matthew 6.21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also. So when it says a cheerful giver, the Greek word for that is hilaros. That's the Greek word. It's where we get the word hilarious. It means a little different. We think hilarious means like wild laughter, but it does refer to the fact that it's unrestrained. When you find something's hilarious, you're laughing, and you're not inhibited, you're not holding it in, okay? You have a good belly laugh. Well, the idea of a cheerful giver is somebody who gives completely wholly, who's not restrained. And that refers to the nature of who God is. We know in chapter 5 of Acts, verses 1 to 11, about Ananias and Sapphira. You know, when they saw what Barnabas gave, and he gave, they thought, oh, well, we got, we're not going to be shown up by him, and we'll give some money. Frankly, we'll give more than he did. But Peter knew that their heart wasn't right. We talked about the right heart, right attitude. They gave more. That would have blessed the church. He says that you sold the land. Did you give all that the land had? Yeah. You're not lying to me. You're lying to God. Challenge for us is, what is our heart? Again, the Spirit knows. And at that time, as the presence of God was so strong, the judgment of God was much more severe. And so Ananias was smote right then. And when his wife came in, they questioned her, and she parroted the same line. And she fell down just with, as they're carrying her husband out at the same time. And fear went to the whole church. And realized what they realized then is that God is serious. And the challenge we have now is sometimes we forget because we haven't seen as much the judgment of God that God's still very serious. But instead of judging us because he's withheld his hand, okay, his primary focus now is, you want my presence? Then you'll need to be more like Jesus. So what he's withheld is some of his blessing, and the biggest blessing is himself. 
And as we have that wrong heart and wrong attitude, we will lose the blessing of the Lord. More of the right heart and the right attitude will seal the presence of God. Seeing the presence of God, it will change us, make us more like Jesus, seeing more of the presence of God. It becomes this positive reinforcing cycle, giving us strength and focus, and will prepare us for heaven. Will prepare us for heaven. So, I like this, and I read this. This is by Mr. Dehan. During World War II, the slogan was often heard, give until it hurts. Now, that may be all right for the world, but certainly it's not a proper slogan for the Christian who wants to be all that he should be for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've given to the Lord and it still hurts, my friend, then you have not yet given enough. Our motto, our motto must always be, according to Scripture, give until it feels good. It hurts for you to give to him. If it hurts for you to give to him who gave his all for you, it's a foregone conclusion that you haven't yet given all you should. God doesn't ask you to give for his sake as much as for your own sake. God, after all, doesn't need your gifts. He wants you to give for your own benefit. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 35. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Our Lord, our Lord certainly has no need for gifts, as Paul has said in Acts chapter 17, 24 to 25. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. It's for our benefit then that he wants us to share the joy of giving. Do you have that joy? So we talk about God is able to make all grace abound towards you. Okay? And he says, and always having all sufficiency in all things. That word for sufficiency is autarkia. And that means contentment. So in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, now godliness with contentment is great gain. So that word of autarky is only used in those two places. And that contentment, it's kind of like the world saw self-sufficient and we see that you got to pull yourself by your own bootstraps, you got to make things on your own. You know, when you're an adult, you're 18, you have some parents who go, okay, you got to be self-sufficient. Go out in the world and make a life for yourself. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about God's sufficiency. It's about being fully sufficient in the Lord. Okay? And our soul, our self being fully sufficient to the Lord. And so he's having the sufficiency in all things because our sufficiency comes from Christ. What does it mean that we went through every day feeling that, knowing, operating that our sufficiency is in Christ in everything? In everything. That's what he means by that word of contentment and sufficiency. And so what is for? May an abundance for every good work. Look at Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power 
that works in us. Please remember, my brothers, it is God who originates everything. All the good that we have comes from the Lord. Every single good thing we have in our lives comes from God. He's going to do it for his purpose. He is not a bad God. He's not a cruel taskmaster. He's a good father. And a good father wants his sons to be more like him, but also wants his sons to do what needs to do. Sometimes a good father is pushing his sons to step into a role that may be initially difficult, knowing that as you persevere, that you'll get stronger in faith with him and reliance on him. And that shows with all disciplines, including in our giving. So let's move on to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 to 11. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seeds you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness which you are while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which, God, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So that first part here in the parentheses, or in the, in the quotation marks about dispersed abroad, that all comes from Psalm 112, verse 9. And it talks about the man who does it. So Paul's referring to something and is using, he was actually quoting from the Septuagint, but basically Paul's talking about that when you have that attitude and that heart of giving, this is the characteristics, and the righteousness you will have will be in the Lord. His righteousness endures forever. So, Larry says, practical righteousness endures forever, not only through the deeds, but in the doer, as he is progressively transformed into Christ-likeness. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. We, we've already discussed it earlier, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Every discipline we put into practice that's like Christ changes us. Every action we do either draws us more like Christ or further away. We either become more Christ-like or not. There's no middle ground. We don't really get to tread water here. We sometimes think we get to kind of like skate by. I went to here, I was really following the Lord, and I can just coast for a while. And then the next time, and I can just coast for a while. That's not how it works. The Christian walk is this. You're, everything we're doing is upstream like a salmon. Salmon going back to its spawning grounds. It's upstream. You coast, you're going back. I've seen it. I'm sure we've all seen it. We don't get to coast with Jesus. You have to keep swimming forward. Okay? And the, the key to realize is as we do it in our attitude, okay? And he says, now he who supplies seed to the sower. Who is he who supplies? It's God. All the good that God does, right? Everything he does, he's equipping us. He is the mo strongest advocate in our corner. You sometimes think it's a boxing fight and God's in your corner at the end of each round, he's there. No, he's in the ring with you. He's in the ring with you. 
okay? You're not, he's not in the corner. He's in the moment you're in right now. Right now, God is with you in all things because you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. He's guiding everything. You, the question is, do you listen to the Holy Spirit? He's right there. Or do you listen to your own thoughts and your own, your own thinking, your own reasoning, your own natural mind? That's the challenge for each of us in each moment. And it's so easy for us, it's our default to go to our natural mind. I do most of my work through my natural mind. I do most of my decisions through my natural mind. The invitation by God is to seek Him in each moment, to talk to Him and ask Him, God, what do you want to do? What's the spiritual thing that you want me to do here? And you think that you're doing it because we look at expediency that we want to take care of it. Oh, I'll do it this way because that's the most expedient way. But that may not be what the Lord wants because there may be a spiritual thing He wants to do in the midst of it. How often does God meet us in ways that is tangential, that's cross to what we think we should be doing? He take, we go down this path and then we realize God wants us to take on this detour to take us to a place to meet somebody in need. And we thought we were there for that reason that we wanted to get, whether it's a piece from the auto shop or whatever, you want to go to Home Depot or whatever we're trying to do when we're supposed to meet a person and we're going to talk and encourage them. And so the point is we have to realize God's always looking from the spiritual and the invitation for us in that same moment, hey, what do I need? God, where are you here? Where are you working in the moment of now? Help me to join you in now. Give me the presence to see what you're doing now. So it's a, and we are, you're enriched in everything. I say that because I know that when I've gone in, to a place and trying to get something done that I thought I needed to do, and somebody else, I meet somebody and I was able to meet them and encourage them, I come back pumped. When you're able to encourage somebody in the faith, when you're able to meet somebody and you see that what you did definitely had a spiritual value, praise God if you, you, were, God, you were used to lead them to Christ. But even if you just encourage them, even if you're able to meet them and you realize you just had a conversation and you're both talking about the goodness of God, you come back and what do you remember? Wow, I am so encouraged by that relationship, by spending that time. Not so much that I got the light bulb that I needed from Home Depot, but rather I had that conversation. And so the richness that expands, we have to realize in the moment, there are, these, are, these are available to us all the time. We don't see it because we're not looking for it. All this is aligned together. The heart that's a giving saying, look God, I'm here to give of myself. If I'm here for your purposes, then how do I do that? We may pray it at the beginning of the day in our quiet time, the invitation is to pray it throughout the day. And especially when things don't go the way that we think they should. God sometimes does that. He needs to put a little bit of a bump in the road so that we have to get out of our, like, you know, when you're distracted and then you hit a pothole and you're driving, it's like, whoa, got to pay attention. Even worse than if you hit the curb or the rumble strip. Who's hit the rumble strip? I have, okay, right? It's like it wakes you up. Well, sometimes God does a little jostle to wake you up, to get you focused on what are you doing it for? Where are you? What are you thinking? What's your focus? 
there are, every moment is divine. There's not, things don't happen by accident. I'm not saying God is specifically manipulating everything to happen in a particular way. I'm saying that God permits within how he created reality, events to happen, and he uses all things to conform us to the image of Christ. Okay, let's move on. Oh, I'm actually going to give you this. The same verse that we read, the J.B. Phillips again. Who, he who gives the seed to the sower and turns the seed into bread to eat will give you the seed of generosity to sow and for harvest the satisfying bread of good deeds done. The more you are enriched by God, the more scope there will be for generous giving. And your gifts administered through us will mean that many will thank God. Many will thank God. So that's the fruits of righteousness, that all the things that we do, when we do good, remember I was talking earlier about the Corinthian church in the first few verses. It inspired the Macedonian church to give. And he's saying, hey, give the Macedonian church. He wants to basically challenge in a way, the Corinthian church to give more, in a way to, hey, how do we, how do we outgive each other? And the Macedonian church pled with the ability to give. He said, no, no, he said, you can't give. Yeah, we want to give. How you go? Well, don't worry, we'll take care of it. We want to give. Please allow us the privilege of giving. Most of us think, ah, okay, I'll give. But not the privilege. No, 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 get out of the way. I'm going to do that. Sometimes it happens when we pay for a check at, at a meal or something like that, but that's the heart that God wants. So moving to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 to 14. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ, and for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by the prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. So what is he saying? There are a few, four points here that he's trying to say. Okay, so number one, on a practical level, the giving that the Corinthian church do meets the needs of the saints. Okay, second thing they do is they give thanksgiving to God because you do. Because you gave, they're thankful to God. So the giving spurs others to thank God. Number three, the obedience of your confession. It basically showed... You're bearing fruit. You believe, you know, your actions prove what you believe. So their obedience that they shows that God's evidence of their work in them. Okay? And that obedience showed that they were liberal. They were liberal in their giving and their sharing. And that liberal sharing refers to a word that Pastor talked about on Sunday. And this is a critical thing because it refers to the body of Christ. The word is, Greek word, koinonia. Okay? So that koinonia, okay, for that here is translated as sharing. So that koinonia, that fellowship, that word is used in four different ways. One, in the areas of fellowship, it's showing in communion. It means the sharing of things in common. It shows in our lives. 
when we share our lives. Not only things in common that we do, but the thing in our lives. It shows that we share in the remembrance of Jesus' work in us, like when we have communion. And it shows in our resources that we give so that no one would be destitute. We can't really be a body if we have somebody so suffering that they can't even make ends meet. And so that kind of koinonia refers to all the things that you do together. Really, in a sense, except for the part of the communion, the Lord's Supper, much of it's like what a real family is about. And a real koinonia is the fellowship of the Spirit is actually supposed to be greater than biology. That's not talked a lot. It's actually supposed to be greater than biology. That means that your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ in your fellowship is supposed to be greater than your biological family. How many of us really believe that? How many of us operate on that? That's a hard one for me. That's a hard one for me. I'll be honest with you. That's what the word says. That's something that still needs to be a work in me in that. So the fourth one, the last one there was prayer that would encourage people to pray. So when they gave and they gave to Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem church would reciprocate in the way that they could do best, which is to pray. They were praying church. They were led by James, who's a member I've shared before from here called Camel Knees because he prayed fervently. This was a congregation that believed in prayer based on the fact that they had such great needs, they were probably compelled to do so as well. But that prayer was not fruitless, it was fruitful, and they could pray for others. And this is a praying church. We're gonna be meeting to pray this Friday, this Friday. I'm gonna share a testimony or a story of George Mueller, who you know. So George Mueller supported 2,000 orphans through prayer without making his needs known. But he didn't just ask and receive from God. He also gave generously to the Lord's work. At one point, he fully supported 10 missionaries in China. Over a 54-year period, he gave away 86% of what he'd received for his personal support. 86%. He could have become wealthy and lived in luxury. Instead, he kept the bottom of the funnel open and God kept pouring into the top. You know, so many ministries now, we don't see that. One of the things that grieves me in some of the big ministries out there is the ones on top definitely don't, don't appear to be as generous that way. John Blanchard said, Christian giving is not a matter of finance, it's a matter of faith. The church treasure counts what we give, God counts what we keep. Pierre Charon said, he who receives a benefit should never forget it. He who bestows should never remember it. So let's move to the last verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. So what's his indescribable gift? Probably the most commonly shared verse, you see this at every football game, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever 
believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So obviously, Jesus, the salvation we have through Jesus is that indescribable gift. Now, the word that Paul used here is a word that's only used by Paul. No other writings at that time actually had that word. It's a word in Greek that says, anekdeogetos, anekdeogetos. And so, no other Greek writers ever use that. It's like, based on a word that basically said, detailed description, and he's saying, without detailed description. Basically, things you cannot describe it in detail. There aren't words enough to talk about it. So we say indescribable is a good word. It can't be described. It can't, ineffable, can't really be contemplated. We won't know until heaven what Jesus really did for us. We won't know until heaven what Jesus really did for us. We have to be reminded Every day we can forget it so easily. We can forget it. What his sacrifice, what he did for us. How he didn't need to do this. And that gift that Jesus did, that indescribable, that inexplicable, that ineffable, that amazing gift, unspeakable blessing. You know, Clark says, Jesus Christ, the gift of God's love to mankind, is an unspeakable blessing no man can conceive, much less declare. How great this gift is for these things that angels desire to look into. Therefore, he may be well called the unspeakable gift, as he is the highest God has ever gave or can give to man. He is the highest God has ever gave or can give. Which is Jesus, if we if cannot forget what he did for us, what he's doing for us. We can become so calloused, so self-absorbed, so focused on the temple. To for, and he's asking us, encouraging us to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that indescribable gift, that gift that he gave us is the reason that drives everything that we do. It drives who we are. Clark then says, our affliction we scarcely ever forget, our mercies we scarcely ever remember. Our hearts are alive to complaint, but dead to gratitude. We have had 10,000 mercies for one judgment, and yet our complaints to our thanksgiving have been 10,000 to one. How is it that God endures this and bears with us? He's saying we tend to complain. Why isn't this going my way? Why did he cut me off? Why is this happening? How come I have to deal with this? Why is my back aching? Why is this bothering me? We may not voice them out loud, but we think of them. What did this happen? And our blessings are 10,000 to one compared to the, our troubles. And that reflects our heart. That's why it needs to be renewed each day. That's why we ha our flesh has to be crucified. So the word here that he used again and again, if you want to remember one of the key words, even though everybody talks about the book of Galatians about grace, is they use the word grace here in chapter 8 and 9 ten times. And that Greek word for grace is charis, or, okay? Which we get the English word charity. In many ways, it's a better word for what God is than love. Because charity is love in action. So when they use the word in 1 Corinthians 13 about love does this, in 
the King James that used the word charity for it. Pardon me? Yeah. No. And so charity is, uh, um, the charity is an active action. And so look at, let's look at some of the verses. In 2 Corinthians 8.1, the use charis referred to the grace of God. In 8.4, the favor of participation in the support of the saints. In 8.6, that he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. In 8.7, that you abound in this gracious work also. And then in 9, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 16, 8.16, but thanks, that's also grace, be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. In 8.19, his gracious work which being administered for us for the glory of the Lord himself. In 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you. In 9.14, by prayer on your behalf, yearn, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And then we just shared, thanks or grace be to God for his indescribable gift in 2 Corinthians 9.15. Grace is the engine God has given. Everything that we do in our giving is a reflection of what God has done and the gratitude that we have to what God did. When we can get that and appreciate the grace of God in all that we do, then we'll be free. We'll be cheerful. Because we realize that there's no way, talk about you can't outgive God, there's no other way that anything we can do can surpass what He's done. And that we can hold things freely, trusting in His sufficiency. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you grateful for who you are, Lord, and for what you've done. Thank you. Thank you. You are indescribable. But you've given us so much that's indescribable, Lord. And Father, I pray that each man hears, takes a hold of how good of you are, what your, what your nature is really like, how abundantly you want to provide and that we would walk in abandon in all things, trusting you, giving of ourselves generously, wholly, cheerfully for your glory. You deserve nothing less. In your name, amen.